We're glad that you were able to join us. I want to say a special hello to those of you who are visiting or who are uh, coming to church, which is an unusual thing for you because perhaps uh, you decided to check out Christianity or friends invited you or bent your arm. I'm not sure which. I remember when people invited me uh, to go to church when I was investigating Christianity. I didn't have the courage to do that. So if you do, thank you for your courage. We, uh, we hope that this is a good place to get your questions asked and answered. We are looking at a series of teachings by Jesus which confounded and astounded the people around him, and uh, that teaching is the Sermon on the Mount, the first parts of which have a series of blessings, which in traditional Christian history we have called the Beatitudes. We are getting near the end of them, and we are doing the last one that you see, but if you'll turn to the back panel of your bulletin, you will see the verses that we will be reflecting upon today, and to help us with that, Jen. Our first reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as I mentioned, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly this first part called the Beatitudes, this description of blessings. And we've seen before that they are tied together. They're one piece. They are fruits of God's Spirit working in God's people. They are therefore distinctly Christian attributes, Given by Christ himself through his spirit, they build upon one another. This week we're looking at this promise, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as we will see, this idea of mercy builds upon last week's beatitude of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen to Lyndon's sermon on how righteousness 
defined biblically is not just a personal righteousness, not just your moral righteousness. It is that. But it is also, as the gospel defines it, this fully orb sense of God's shalom, of God's reign, of God's justice in every area of life, economically, socially, spiritually, culturally. Now, in this reflection, this sermon, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to give you three points. I'm stuck on three. I'm sorry. One day I'll break free of this. But I'm going to look at it through three different lenses. First, we're going to ask the question, what does he mean by the merciful? Secondly, what stops us from being merciful as Jesus defines it? And thirdly, what will unleash this kind of mercy in us? What is it? What stops it? What unleashes it? What is it? What is this gospel merciful or mercy? First thing I want to say, as I've kind of alluded to, is it is not natural human mercy that we often show to people. Every human shows some kind of mercy as part of being human, as part of what John Calvin called their natural humanity. Mostly we show it to our friends and our family. Then maybe to the people we know and work with. There is some connection, some level of mutuality that makes them have a claim on our lives that allows us to extend normal human mercy to them. Not not the same kind of mercy and the same intensity to all, but a natural mutual relationship. As the esteemed theologian Howard McPhee put it, this mercy is showing love and compassion to those who have some kind of claim on me. That's the nature of the relationship. That's normal human mercy. Gospel mercy requires no claim on you. You don't even need to know them. You don't even need to have ever met them. Secondly, gospel mercy is not the same as justice. Justice, as as, as understood, as Lyndon described, is the compassionate and passionate desire for God's justice to come to those who have been unjustly treated and are innocent. Justice is the rectification of wrong. People who are the proper recipients of justice, innocent people who've been wronged by external oppression, are the right objects of our desire for justice. I remember when I was in law school, my torts professor, Professor Solomon, got up and talked about the clean hands theory. I said, what's the clean hands doctrine? He said, well, in the middle of trying to to, to do something unlawful, something happens to me and I sue for it. He says, it's like a bank robber who sues a bank because he trips leaving the bank and says, you know, your, your exit, there was an improper thing there and I tripped and I fell and I got injured. I'm suing you. And then in cross-examinations, what were you doing in the bank? Well, I was robbing it. (laughs) Yeah, you have just forfeited your right to justice because you were not innocent. Justice is about innocent people being given their just due. Mercy is not justice because mercy doesn't care how innocent you are. Mercy is willing to overlook the fact that your misery may have been caused by you. Mercy doesn't care or require the innocence of the victim before acting to help. Ah, well, mercy is starting to sound a lot like grace. Is mercy just grace? No. No, no, no. John Stott put it well. The Greek word for mercy 
Elios, always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress, the results of some kind of sin. The word for grace, charis, always deals with the sin or guilt itself. Mercy extends relief. Grace extends pardon. Mercy cures, heals, and helps. Grace cleanses and reinstates. Grace is about forgiving guilt and sin. Mercy is about compassionately delivering someone from the results of sin and brokenness, accidents, or even injustice. Mercy breaks misery. It's a bigger concept. It may include grace and forgiveness. But I can have mercy on someone who never sinned against me. That's not what mercy is. Okay, then what is mercy? Mercy, then, is the compassionate, gracious, inconvenient acting to help heal the misery of someone who has no claim on you and who has been broken by either their own sin or the sin of others or just the general brokenness of the world we live in. That's gospel mercy. Now, what stops it? Take a look at the story of the Good Samaritan because it begins by telling us about two people. Three, actually. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The man in this context is clearly, because he's coming from Jerusalem, in the minds of the original hearers, he's Jewish. Now, by chance, a priest was coming down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. What's going on here? The first thing we need to realize is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho at that time was a dangerous road. It was a winding, steep descent through forests. It was known to be a place where bandits and robbers would hide in the bushes. And when someone came along who was vulnerable, they would be ambushed. It was easily done. And apparently, historians have noted, there was a technique of bandits to have someone on the road pretending to be a victim. Because people coming down this road would often be wary. And one way to break the wariness would be to have an alleged victim there. So they would get off off their donkey or their horse, get down to help and be very vulnerable. And then you ambush them. And so put yourself in the situation. You're walking down the road and you see a man off just on the side, really near the bushes, bleeding and broken. What do you do? What do you think? What do you feel? You would certainly be tempted to do what the two Jewish men did. To see him on the side and go, they're hiding in the bushes right there. I'm going to go by on the other side. I'm going to protect myself. Priests and Levites, though, had a kind of claim by their title to help. They were supposed to, as part of their official roles in Jewish religious society, to help those in need. And both of them didn't. They walked by on the other side. Why? Jesus doesn't exactly say why. He wants you to put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, what would you do? Martin Luther King, on the night before he was assassinated, murdered in cold blood, was speaking to a bunch of people about a march they were going to have. And he spoke about this very parable. 
And he said, I don't know, but I think this is what happened. When the priest and the Levites saw that man on the road, the question they asked themselves was this, what will happen to me if I stop and help that man? I submit to you in some form or another, that is the question you would ask yourself. What will happen to me if I stop and help this man? And therein you have asked the question that stops you from unleashing mercy. We need to stop our overly busy lives and examine ourselves and ask if this question is not in our own hearts and minds. Because I know it's in mine. It's a question that arises out of self-love, self-absorption, and self-protection. It's a question that arises out of lives too filled with plans, meetings, deadlines, bucket lists, things to do, people to see, promotions to get, plans and dreams for ourselves that fill our lives, take all of our time, drain our emotions, our own pleasures, our own progress, us. Here are some reasons that I know I ask the question. Let's see if any of these resonate with you. Firstly, insularity leading to inadequacy. Some of us, and I was one of them, lived a life of being insulated from what I considered broken and hurting people. I lived out in the suburbs. I didn't see a lot of broken people, or so I thought, around me. As a result, when I meet brokenness in people, I'm not sure whom to help. I'm not sure how to do it. I don't know what to do. This inadequacy arises out of inexperience. But let me get into some deeper reasons that I think are actually underneath that still. One of them, and at least for me, is fear. Some of us are nervous about going into places of pain and suffering because of what it rings up in our own hearts. I realized this week, perhaps for the first time, that I still live in the shadow of some past humiliations from my own childhood that still haunt me. I grew up small and skinny and smart. That's a bad combination in a family where athleticism and social giftedness are valued. I felt humiliated many times by my father's attempts at humor, by his description of me to his friends. By the way, parents, those kids are listening every time you talk about them. It's amazing how the play upstairs goes silent when we use my daughter's name. I heard everything he said, and I buried it deep. And so I developed a fear of being seen as weak, of being weak, of being vulnerable, of being around weak people in weak situations. I was scared of being branded as weak, so I fled weakness. And to this day, when people show weakness to me, I have to fight the desire to flee. Fear may be in you. Secondly, the desire for comfort, indifference. I just have to be honest. We who are affluent and successful on a career track towards success are already there. You know, we don't like to be disturbed by misery and misfortune. Our affluence and our life is comfortable but busy, and we like it that way. Showing mercy is inconvenient. It takes time emotionally. It takes money. It takes changing our schedules, and it gives us very few rewards. Well, for most of us, then, that's an uphill battle. 
That for sure is me. I like to fill my schedule, define myself as being productive. So I don't have any room in my schedule for those who actually need me. John Calvin said, This is why many imagine they're blessed when they are actually at ease. They're able to live the good life without thinking of what is happening around them. They actually only want to block their ears to shut out news which might affect them. Thirdly, this was cued into me this week when I was talking to another pastor. Indifference, but also improper theology. We think mercy is optional. Speaking to the pastor this week, and he said to me, do you notice that most large affluent churches are made up, that are made up of wealthy people generally don't talk about mercy and justice? I had to think about that. They said, what, ha- what seems to happen in these churches is that people begin to think mercy is an optional part of my Christian life. Getting out of my comfort zone and helping people who are in misery is not essential to my Christian journey. That may well have been what was going into the minds of these Jewish men. I, my role as a priest is temple work. I'm on the road to Jericho. I'm not, I'm not in my official capacity. I, this is not where I show mercy. The Levites, same thing. This, this, this is not my gig in the Jewish religious community. This isn't my Sunday thing, they might be saying if they were here now. Saturday for them. Yeah? I'm in the dangerous dog-eat-dog Jericho Road. I'm in the dangerous dog-eat-dog world of Monday through Saturday on the path. I'm in the competitive academic world, not the church world. Mercy doesn't apply to most of my life. You ever feel that way? Look at the promise again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They are the ones who distinguish themselves as actually being Jesus' followers. The real world, the dog-eat-dog world of your work, the competitive world of your studies, that boss who mistreated you, and suddenly you hear their marriage is broken down, that's Jesus' world right there. And though they may have no claim on you, or you may have a claim against them, they are the neighbors that we are not called to pass by on the other side. So when you hear this question rising in you, what will happen to me if I stop to help them? You know that the obstacles that have reared their heads in your life and in your heart are there. You know why? Because of who we are. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to our own way. Because it's about us. So how do, you, how do you fight that? How do you unleash mercy? I speak as one who's just learning this. One who has many of these obstacles. But in this story, I see a couple of things. It says, as we continue in our story, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, verse 33, came to where he was, and when he saw him... He had compassion. A lot of things in this little verse, but I just want to point them out. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, so he wasn't, he didn't have to sign up for a nonprofit to get involved. He just was journeying. But as he was journeying, he saw misery in his journey of life. He came to, it came to where he was. He wasn't hiding from it. He wasn't running to it. He was just experiencing life, not insulated, not seeking, it was there. 
And I submit to you, in your journey of life, misery is all around you. If you have eyes to see, and that's what he did. He saw him. They, they all saw him. They couldn't miss it. But Jesus wants us, I think, to think, see it when it's around you. But the big thing that Jesus says, the obvious thing is, he had compassion. Here's what separates the Samaritan from the, from the, the people who preceded him. Jesus makes this person a Samaritan in his story because he knows at the time Samaritans and Jewish people hated each other. Far from feeling that this man has a claim on me, the Samaritan was part of a group of people that had settled into land once belonging to Jews. Jews hated them as people who'd stolen their land. But Samaritans, historians say, were probably related by blood to the people the Jewish nation had kicked out in their conquest when they originally took the land. So the Samaritans were like, that was our land first. And the Jews were like, that's our land. They hated each other. They avoided each other. They resented each other. They each felt the other owed them justice. And Jesus says, this man lying on the side of the road has no claim on the Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan, it says, had compassion. Look what compassion did. Compassion didn't, oh, he's hurt. I'll pray for him as I run away. Josh McDowell said, that's pity. You can pity a man on the side of the road bleeding and leave him. But compassion leads to involvement. He risked his own safety. He got off his animal, probably a donkey. He took the time to bind the man's wound. Now, if you think there are robbers right behind you as you're binding the wounds, this is severely vulnerable. He took the time, precious time, dangerous time. He then set the man on his own animal. So he's walking with an animal and a man. He can't go fast. He's still vulnerable, a sitting duck, dangerous. He took him all the way to an inn. He paid for his care and said, I will come back and pay for the rest. Martin Luther King, commenting on this said, the priest and the Levite asked themselves, what will happen to me if I stop and help this man? But the Samaritan asked a different question. He asked, what will happen to him if I don't stop and help him? That is the question that God's compassion stirs us to ask. It is the question, I believe, that stirred the heart of the good Samaritan, and we need to say why. Jesus never tells us. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says, go and do likewise. He creates this almost impossible bar. You have to be like that? Who lives that merciful life consistently? (laughs) There is someone who did. And that's the whole point. Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. He was insulated up in heaven. God himself fully God, fully insulated from all pain. But he saw us broken and bleeding because of our own desire to walk away from him. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned to our own way. So he came down and became human. And becoming human, he allowed himself to be beaten and he allowed himself not to be half dead. But he allowed his body to be broken and hung on a cross until he himself bled out and died because he didn't take the Jericho road. He took the road to Calvary, the road to the cross. 
He was despised and rejected by men, said Isaiah, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom we hide our faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds we are healed. Don't you see? Jesus seems to be talking about this fictional man in a parable on this impossibly high standard. He is that man. What claim do we have on him? None. We walked our own way. We forgot God. We ignored God. God came down and Jesus says, I have a claim against you. You're the one who walked away from me, stole my right to live and guide you. And yet I have compassion on the misery you brought on yourself. And I came all the way down to bind your wounds and heal you, to lift you out of the misery. And see, when we see this, that we are all this Jewish person, broken and bleeding, needing someone who has no, we have no claim on, someone to unconditionally come down and pick us up. And take us out of our misery by his own unconditional compassion. Then we've begun to understand what mercy is. Because mercy has flowed to us in just this way. John Calvin says, because God has bound us all together, no one can turn away and live only for himself. There's no room here for the indifference which promises tranquility and the pleasures of a comfortable life. We must enlarge our affections as the law of love requires who is my neighbor. Anyone broken by the misery of sin and the brokenness of this world, even and especially if they have no claim on us. Four quick applications. Firstly, change your view of yourself to actually have the kind of compassion described by the story of the Good Samaritan. You have to see yourself not as him, but as the one broken and bleeding by the side of the road. Change your view of who you are. God in his unconditional mercy had compassion on you. You can't flow God's compassion out until you have it in. If you have never become a Christian, this is your first step. Allow God's compassion for you. See yourself as one who has fled from God. And see your own defiance of God as something that gives you no claim to Him. But by His grace, He comes to you. Invite Him in. Change your view of yourself. And if you are a Christian, remind yourself of who you are. After you've changed your view of yourself, secondly, change your schedule. Open it up so that you can set aside some time, some margin to go and find time for mercy. He carved out the time for help in the story, the Samaritan man. He wasn't in such a rush. For centuries, Christians have set aside a whole day, a Sabbath, for meeting, worshiping, and for mercy. They've carved out a day. And so they go through their week looking for opportunities to see opportunities for mercy because they opened their schedule. Open your schedule. Set aside time, margin for rest and for mercy. Thirdly, change the way you see. 
We talked a lot this Tuesday as pastors and interns about most of us when we hear the word mercy, we think of the homeless person we'll see as we walk by, and they certainly are candidates. But the coworker who just lost someone to cancer, the boss or someone below you who just had their marriage break up, the people in your neighborhood, you may live in the suburbs. The suburbs are filled with broken people broken relationships. Open your eyes to see and then open your heart and ask for God's spirit of compassion to flow into you. If you're so insulated that you don't even see it anywhere, then I invite you to contact Grace Center for Mercy and Justice where we can help you move into places where the regular rhythms of your life have people who need mercy in them. Because it's the call of the Jericho Road to follow the good Samaritan who took that road all the way to Calvary to while we are journeying to come across people, to see them, to have compassion, and then out of compassion to show mercy and to show the world what the Lord Jesus means. When he says, love your neighbor, let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. May you use these words to motivate me again and anew to carve out time, to carve out space in my heart, to still the fear and to fight the complacency and to show mercy to those who are my true neighbor in Christ's name. Amen. Fantastic question opens us up. Oh, I allow people to jump the queue by putting your hand up. This is our interactive time. So if you have a question, comment, or critique, you can put your hand up uh, or you can just text it in. But I do give people who have the courage to verbally ask their questions. Okay, I'm going to just go to these for now. There aren't too many. What should we do if there's far too much misery in the world for us to address? How do we decide which neighbor to show mercy first? This is, I think... The question that stirs me all the time. I'm, I make mistakes in this, so I don't have a great answer. Um, I would say one of the principles that the Good Samaritan shows us is um, there, there is the world out there, and social media and, and the Internet and, and, and the world is now brought to us by modern technology. There is misery everywhere. And as a matter of fact, um, it was my mother who you know, the last 10 or 15 years really got into the internet. We were talking and she said something very haunting to me. She said, you people growing up now, it's so much harder. When I grew up, we didn't have the internet. We didn't know about all the problems everywhere. It's just such a weight to carry. And it's too hard. Uh, My social media is filled up with probably 30 at a time problems all over the world, every continent. And so this is a great question. And I'm not answering it. (laughs) Start with the people that are actually in your life. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the people around you, the people you regularly run into, the person at the coffee shop that serves you your coffee. And if it's multiple coffee shops, try and make it less so you get to know them. My daughter was shocked that I knew the names of the people who uh, do the dry cleaning for my shirts. (laughs) But I learned a long time ago, I need 
to know the people in my life, to be able to find out the misery and how I can pray and how I can help. So I say start with the people around you. Ask God to open your eyes. Start asking questions. Get beyond the chit-chat at the water cooler at work. Maybe go out for a beer and get to know the person. Find out what their real needs are. Ask if you can pray for them. It's often shocking how people who might be afraid of religion, they feel your love when you ask how they can pray, and they'll open their lives to you, and then you know. And sometimes that prayer turns into opportunities for mercy. Yeah, great, great question. I don't have all of them. Ah, now we have 22, okay. Four to 22, that was quick. Um, How do we show mercy to those who aren't particularly open to the message of the gospel? Same way you show mercy to anybody. See the misery, have compassion, move in to help. Even if you don't know how to help, go and be present and ask, how can I help? And even if they say, I don't know, just say, okay, I'm just here for when you know. That's what I do. How do we, in today's time, when there's so many uh, uh, people who aren't necessarily honest, show mercy uh, to people who are asking for it? I don't know. I, 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 I went out uh, to meet with homeless people once because I had this question about people who are experiencing homelessness. I said, I don't know if I should give them money or not. He says, well, come with me one day. So he went out and he was really, he worked with street people all the time. And he had, he had coffee. He had a big bat of coffee in his car. He had fresh socks, fresh underwear, fresh toilet paper. And he, got, he went to know their name. He said, most of these people are nameless to you. Asking for money is transactional. I get to know them. I want to know what their name is. And I, I find out what their needs are. I'm bringing them toilet paper, socks, and underwear because I found out enough about them to know this is what they regularly need more than they need $3 to have a whatever. And so I just learned from him that there are ways, but once you know them, you know this. And I didn't, and he told me, but once you know them, you know this. Get to know them, and you will learn And it's okay, by the way, if you give money to people who don't use it well. I'm not here to ask for the motives of every single person. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm just called to follow God onto the road of mercy. Okay, I've got to go, but I'll answer one more more question. How do we not get caught up in a hero complex? You're not the Good Samaritan. You're the Jewish person beaten and bloodied by the side of the road and the Good Samaritan has come to you. And now that's who you are. And so the next time you see someone, you don't go, I'm the Good Samaritan. You go, that was me. That is me still. Let me join them. And let me help them see the real Good Samaritan in action and if possible in words. Never have a hero complex. You'll never show God's mercy if you think you're better than them. You will only show God's mercy when you see you are them. That's a good time to transition to the Lord's table. Because in the Lord's table, God wants us to remember who we are and remember who he is. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, his last night with his disciples, he broke bread and he said to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. A little while later, he held up a cup of wine and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant given in my blood. Do this in memory of me. And what Jesus meant by breaking the bread and passing it out for them to eat 
and, and holding up the cup of wine and passing it out for them to drink was he wanted them to share a meal together, a meal of understanding and refreshing and remembering who he is. We to participate with Jesus in what this means, and what this means is he was going to die. His body would be broken, and his blood would be poured out to bind and heal our wounds, to take the guilt away, and to take away the misery that that guilt had created. It's not totally gone, but it is there, and it promises that one day it will be fully gone. And so this promise is for all baptized believers in Jesus, that his body is for you. His blood through his wine is for you. And so we are going to participate together in this meal to remind ourselves of what the true Good Samaritan did. And so if you're a baptized believer, it doesn't matter what church you belong to. This meal is for you. If you're here and you are still considering or new or investigating, please let it pass by. There are prayers in the bulletin for you to consider to help locate where you might be in your spiritual journey. But if you're ready... If you in your spiritual journey want Christ to come into your life, then just ask him. Ask him to come in and forgive you, to take the guilt away. Ask him to come in and have mercy on you, to begin to take the misery away. I'm going to pray, and after I've prayed, gluten-free bread will be passed around, and then wine, which is darker than the grape juice. As it comes to you, you may take it when you are ready to. Reflect as you will. Take it when you will. I'm going to pray now. And then the table will be open. Father, thank you for the meal that you give us. I pray now that it would refresh us in being recipients of mercy. That your mercy may fill us and thrill us. That we may be motivated by compassion for others. To give to them what has been given to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Table's open.